0: This week on Dig Me Out I may be one night stand but I can never take the place of your man With your hosts Jason Ziak and Tim Menichi
1: Jay this week we are well we're checking out a record that um Kind of ties into an episode we've already done this year, uh, when we had on Andy Hinman, mm-hmm. the uh, touring bass technician or roadie, if you will, mm-hmm. of the Goo Goo Dolls, who happen to have a new album coming out next month called Boxes. It's their, I think, their eleventh album, and uh, so we decided to go back, way back, way way back, to 1990. And check out their third overall record, Hold Me Up. So, uh, Jay, you actually suggested that we we check this one out. When I said, hey, Jay, we need to fill a spot here. What do you want to do? <laughs> I did. So um, why did you suggest uh, the Goo Goo Dolls? I think we debated which album to do, but we decided to go with this one.
0: Yeah. I've always been fascinated with this band in that they have um – um Uh, really two kind of two personalities Mm -hmm. um and i think a lot of their latter-day fans would be shocked when if they dug into the catalog and found some of the early records and right um potentially myself and maybe you and some others um are kind of the opposite (sighs) um i'm not like that with a lot of bands I, i tend to like if i like a band i'll give most of their catalog or understand it um and give it a chance mm-hmm. but for this band, it's really um a boy named goo and and back for me um in terms of what I like right um I'm sure there's probably some stuff on the later the second half of their career that songs here and there that I like, but um I think the songs I wouldn't like would be so polarizing. I don't even give those records a chance um right but uh i always i always uh thought these. These early records were fun and um, and, and pretty interesting, and, and should be a good conversation.
1: Now, I want to give a, just a brief history of the band, uh, which will tie into just me little personal note on this band. So, the Goo Goo Dolls formed in 1986. Um, was actually not exactly the Goo Goo Dolls at the start. Um, uh, Robbie Tackick or I don't know, I think I think it's how you say it. Um, we'll call him Robbie Goo. Robbie Goo, uh, before he was Robbie Goo, was playing in a band with um, uh, the drummer at the time, George Tutuska, or Tutuska, and um, there were in a, so John Resnick, or Johnny Goo, was playing in a band with Robbie's cousin named Paul, and they ended up, uh, I guess somehow getting all together, Robbie, John, and, and George, the drummer, um, and uh, formed the Goo Goo Dolls. And I think the, that wasn't their original name. I think they originally called themselves uh, Sex Maggot. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Which ended up being a song title on their second record. Um, but So the original lineup was Robbie on bass and vocals, and then John singing, I guess, backing vocals, And he didn't sing any lead vocals on the first record. It's all Robbie. And then the second, which is just called The Goo Goo Dolls, and that was released in 1987. Uh, And that was re-released in 1988. It was originally on Mercenary Records, and it was picked up and re-released in 1988 by Celluloid Records. Um, From there, they ended up uh, recording their second record, Jed, which was released in 1989, that featured two songs with uh, John Resnick singing lead vocal. So the transition from Robbie to John was a slow process. Because as we get into the third record, Hold Me Up, which we're reviewing, released in 1990, that's where John sings on five of the songs. Um, and uh, Johnny Robbie was still considered the lead vocalist of the band. Um, and one of the songs that John Resnick did was a cover of the Plimsolls A Million Miles Away. So it was four originals and and uh, one cover. And then uh, from there they released uh, two years later or three years later actually Superstar Car Wash which was uh, 1993 and the interesting note is that uh, it was released by um, Metal Blade with the assistance of Warner Brothers and Paul Westerberg wrote the lyrics of the single, We Are The Normal. I guess Resnick had reached out to him and said, hey, I have this song. I need lyrics for it. Do you want to help me write lyrics? And he sent him a lyric sheet for the song. So that was interesting. What was really more interesting was their next album, the fifth, called A Boy Named Goo. So shortly after they finished recording the album, they fired their drummer and hired, uh, I believe his name is Mike Manilin, and it uh, was again released um, with a little acclaim, and then they put out the, uh, about a, a couple months after the release, they put out the single Name, and that blew up the, the band. That's where everybody probably knows the Goo Goo Dolls from, is, is from Name, because that helped the album go double platinum, which is two million records. Except then they put out a uh, a song on the city of angels soundtrack called iris uh that was then put on to the next album which was dizzy up the girl which was their sixth album released in um 1998 that went triple platinum which i had not realized that a boy named goo was actually the less successful album compared to dizzy up the girl yeah But, but dizzy up the girl had the iris single it had um Slide. Uh, Slide, Black Balloon, Broadway, Dizzy, a bunch of big singles, singles yep. off that. Um, from there, th- I think, Jay, that's where you and I uh, tend to split off from being interested in in the band. Um, yep. They released Dizzy Up the Girl in 98, and then four years later they released Gutter Flower in 2002, and then four years later they released Let Love In in 2006, and then four years later they released Something for the Rest of Us. Then three years later, the album Magnetic. And now it's three years later, and they're putting on a new album, Boxes. And then in between those albums, there are various greatest hits, um, A-side, B-side type stuff. Um, there's a live album that they did for, uh, they played like an anniversary show in Buffalo. I think it was like celebrating the 20th anniversary of the band, and they recorded that. It was like a free show downtown for, you know, 10,000 people or something like that showed up, and they... Uh, played it in the rain but they released like an album and dvd for that show so now the interesting note is that uh in 2014 the second drummer mike malinin again i can't pronounce his name quit so they've just had touring drummers since then their current touring drummer is craig mcintyre and then they also have a touring um before that it was a guy named uh Rick Wolstenholme, And then they also have uh, uh, second, uh, you know, various people throughout the years playing either like second guitar or um, keyboards, what have you. All sorts of extra musicians touring with them. So that is the history of the band. Now, I'm from Buffalo, Jay. You might not know that, but I, I actually am. You are? Yeah. And I didn't know about the Goo Goo Dolls uh, mo- mainly because I moved out of Buffalo in 1990. Mm. So, and I was not what you would call uh, cool or <laughs> or hip or aware of music uh-huh. other than what was on the radio. And the Goo Goo Dolls were not on the radio at this time. Sure. So, if it, if it wasn't Def Leppard or um, the Fat Boys. I probably wasn't listening to it in the late 80s. Um so it wasn't until like a lot of bands was at BG working at the radio station, we got the you know a boy named Goo album. We start playing it. I'm like, "Oh, these are cool tunes. I like this Flat Top song and I like this yeah. You know, Long Way Down and all these other songs. And then Name like explodes and then I'm like, "Oh, this band's from Buffalo." And I start digging into the archives and, like, oh, there's another band, another album here, Sun- Superstar Car Wash. I'll check this one out. Oh, there's another album here. I'll check this one out. So then I end up, you know, during the summers going uh, back to Buffalo because my parents had moved back and, um, you know, realized that the- Buffalo is a wash and goo goo doll love because their hometown band has made good across the country with name and all the singles that went along with that. So I. I, like you, and probably a lot of people, went backwards with this band. I did not know of them until they got super popular. And then as soon as they got super popular and I discovered all the old stuff, I immediately stopped liking the new stuff that came out. Yeah. Um, Which I I was on board with Dizzy Up the Girl probably for a while when that album came out. And then I just got sick of it Um, because I was living in Buffalo I believe the summer it came out, I'd have yeah. to, I, th- I want to make sure that came out in, so that came out in September 98, mm-hmm. and I did an internship summer 98, so I'm sure they were playing singles, you know, right before the album came out. Well, and, you didn't have to be
0: in Buffalo to be sick of that.
1: Right. Well, <laughs> that it, it, no, what got sick of it was 99 and 2000, and when they yeah. went four or five singles, you know, deep on that record. I think they went, I think it's yeah, five singles deep on that record. There were singles being released into the 2000s, so
0: I actually discovered them on uh, Superstar Car Wash. Um, oh, yeah, I remember there was kind of a to do about the, the Paul Westerberg involvement. Um, and I remember that single getting some play on Cleveland radio at the time. Um, it was kind of one of those things where when he first came out, there was you know, a lot of chatter and there seemed to be a push for it. And it just didn't quite, uh, I think go as big as maybe everybody thought. And it kind of died off. Right. So when they popped up again, it's like, Oh, I remember this band. I'm, I think I even bought the record. Um, so I had it before name, you know, became a big single, but you could tell right away when you went through the record, I love flat top and you know, all those rockers, but then you get to that song and it was like, Oh, huh, okay. Like, like, <laughs> this tune stands out, uh, like, and at that time we hadn't really memory serves. We hadn't found our way back to the acoustic ballady thing in full force quite yet. No, um, obviously that was a big part of the late eighties. And then it, it disappeared a little bit in the mid in the early nineties as music changed. And I think this song amongst some others were the return to the, uh, the sensitive guy, acoustic ballad,
1: mm-hmm. almost,
0: almost. I'll let you decide, but almost power ballad. Uh, if it didn't have that it,
1: double time bridge, yeah, that's the that's the thing that takes it out of the power ballad contention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there weren't a lot of these type songs uh, in terms of name in the in the '90s. You have like Lightning Crashes by Live, um, Brick by Ben Folds, and you have a couple. Like those, but like Pearl Jam had one on their first record, and they pretty much got away from it after that. They had Black.
0: I felt like after Name, it sort of opened the door to bands doing it again. And by then, I felt like by the end of the nineties, they were everywhere. Well, I if, think that and
1: then Iris following it. I mean, yeah. Here's the thing: if the Goo Goo Dolls had not followed up Name with Iris, they could have gone. They might have gone in a, in a in a much different direction. Yeah. But the fact they had back to back ballad hits really sealed the deal with them becoming basically an adult oriented rock band Mm -hmm. and i think what's interesting about them is that while a lot of bands from the 90s have either you know stuck around or they've they went away and then they've come back but in a lot of instances they've come back or they've been or been able to continue doing what they're doing with things like pledge music or kickstarter or or um, moving to smaller labels, or indies, or, or just doing it themselves, the Goo Dolls have stayed on a major label the entire time. Yeah, I mean they are a major label band. They they are a tour headliner. They are a really interesting band if you look at like their tour history and, and the promotions that they do. I mean mm-hmm. they play like the halftime at the Orange Bowl. They're doing like openings at like the Apple Store. I mean they get out there and hustle. Mm-hmm. It's it, they've never been a band that like shied away from the business end of the record industry. And I think part of that is because they got so badly screwed um, with that metal blade deal. And there was a, I don't know, you probably don't remember this or I don't know if you do the behind the music with the Google goo dolls. Remember in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was all the behind the musics Yeah, and the goo, goo dolls were one of them. And their contract with metal blade was so bad that they basically made no money. Off of a boy named Goo. Oh man. And Are you they serious? were, yeah, they were playing, and that's the f- the first time I saw the Goo Goo Dolls. I might, actually might have only seen them once, but I think I've seen them twice. Um, they were playing the Ohio State Fair in like 96. I drove down from, from Bowling Green to see them, and the opening band was the Guffs, the second band was Howlin' Maggie. And then the Goo Goo Dolls closed mm. and um, they basically talked about it like a couple years later in that uh, behind the music that they started playing state fairs and like all the sheds that they could get into because they couldn't make any money from the, from the album. So they had to go out and play every show they could just to afford to be a band. Wow.
0: Yeah. So, so did, did the metal bit play, did that deal end after Boy Named Coop?
1: So they, I guess, I think they reached some sort of settlement, okay. and uh, Warner Brothers ended up, like I think, absorbing some of the problems with that. So that when Dizzy Up the Girl came out, they were out of Metal Blade's hands. Yeah, because Metal Blade still basically had a piece of a boy named Goo, mm-hmm. even though I think it's officially, you know, it's one of those things where um, let me grab my uh, my
0: CD. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Metal Blade logo was off the re- that record.
1: But it's on the earlier stuff. Let's see. So if you look at a boy named Goo, it says Warner Brothers slash Metal Blade.
0: Huh. And so crazy. Yeah. It's crazy so, they were even on that record. I mean label, I mean. It's I, I, I kinda see it on the first couple records, but and by the time you get to this one and boy named Goo, it's uh, bizarre. I mean, Metal Blade is now, especially, is even heavier than it was then. So mm-hmm. it's hard to even
1: picture. Yeah, it's sort of like what was that label that had um Sheila Divine? That was like a metal hard rock roadrunner road roadrunner. I mean, it's the same basic you know sort of thing. Well, but- it's funny. I mean, me- Metal Blade is pretty.
0: Uh, they really solidified themselves. I think they got a pretty strong base. I'm wondering how much of that was done on Goo Goo Dolls Money. Yeah. <laughs> like that. As far as I understand, I think they're a pretty strong label you know, right now, considering the size and the bands they have. And yeah, I bet of that, a lot of that is uh, Boy Named Goo Money.
1: I bet it is a lot of Boy Named Goo Money. <laughs> so let's talk about the actual uh, album here which is Hold Me Up, released in 1990, on Metal Blade. Um, as I mentioned, the album is heavier on the Robbie Goo songs than it is on the uh, Johnny Goo songs. The uh, I think you get a little bit of a taste. I just, I'll start off with some observations. You get a little bit of a taste of what John Resnick is capable of mm-hmm. in terms of his melodies and songwriting. He's definitely... When you listen to uh, tracks like I think it's There You Are mm-hmm. you, you hear Paul Westerberg When you listen to that song Like that to me sounds like Tim, Pleased to Meet You Or Pleased to Meet Me uh, You know, mid-era Westerberg Before um, They went a little bit softer With Don't Tell the Soul And the later record Yeah You hear his indebtedness to Paul Westerberg as a vocalist and a songwriter. And I think that's probably what took him a little bit longer. I mean, he's clearly got the better voice in terms of like the traditional rock singer voice. You can can already hear it on this record, Mm -hmm. but he's just, there's not that polish to it. Um, But I think you start to hear also the. What's going to be the, the signature of the Goodalls in the final song? Um, two days in February. Mm-hmm. That's almost like the test run for songs like Name and Iris. Yep. Uh, and ironic, not ironically enough, but I thought that I didn't know this record as well as I did. I, I, did, yeah. I couldn't remember like what was on Jed and what was on this and what was on. I knew some songs I thought maybe like. There You Are I was on Superstar Car Wash and not on this one. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and listened to this record, and I was like, oh, not only do I know this record, I actually learned two days in February on guitar mm. back when I was in college, because it's a great song to learn on like acoustic guitar by yourself. Yeah. It's like three chords, so it's right. not that hard to, to learn.
0: You say you got no faith in things that you can't see. Well, I'm sorry I ain't there with you, but you ain't here with me. I'm down in all my fears, but I ain't crying no tears over you, cause everything's wrong. Well, it's alright, everything's wrong.
1: But you still get the sense of the playfulness of the band, which I liked. You know, having Lance Diamond, um, the incredible Lance Diamond.
0: Can you tell people who Lance Diamond is? So
1: Lance Diamond was a a, a kind of a a legend in the city of Buffalo. Um, In the early, I want to say in like the 70s and 80s, he was like a late night DJ who did like, you know, like that velvety late night playing r&b and soul music and stuff like that and he had like uh, um a lounge act that he would do and i th- the legend goes if you if you read about him is that he was so popular in buffalo that like talent scouts from vegas came to check him out and they approached him after a show and said would you be interested in doing a show in las vegas and he said no it's like i don't have any interest in leaving Buffalo." So he was a buffalo guy, you know, all the way through and he was the downstairs neighbor of Robbie Goo in their apartment building. Oh, okay. And that's how they met. And he had he ended up on um I think he plays his first con- or his first, first contribution to the Goo Goo Dolls is um on their second album, Jed, he does a cover of Down on the Corner by Credence. Mm. And then on this album, he does Never Take Your Place of Your Man by Prince, and it's a it's a great cover. And he's just got a, a you know, a awesome voice. Yep. Uh he passed away last year. Oh, I um, didn't know that. Yeah. He had he had, had some sickness and he was one of those guys he just kept playing and performing until the end. Like sure. he you know, did a show, went home and passed away, basically. I think he had had some sort of medical problem where he had stepped away for, like, a little while. And then he came back and did shows. And, I mean, he was, like, in a retirement home. Like, he was, like, doing shows at, like, the local, you know, retirement home. Like, the guy was a performer through and through. <laughs> Just
0: That's awesome, man.
1: Yeah. And so, um, you know, became friends with the Goo, Goo Dolls and obviously performed with them. And I think he actually performs – he performed live with them at some of their shows. mm Um, so that aspect of the band, I think is, you know, one that I really appreciate, uh, is their, their willingness to like be a little goofy and do things like that. And, um, you know, this, it, the album's a mixed bag, but it's a mixed bag in a good way in that you kind of, especially as a document for this band, you really get to hear what they were going to become and what they were in basically the same album.
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, a document is a good, good way to put it. Um, it, it, I like that it's true to the trio format too. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I'm not sure that they hold that up anymore. Um, but, uh, it's fun to listen to, uh, from that regard, um, to hear how they, um, you know, you, you can, you pretty much know this is what the band sounded like live, you know, that's what's on the record. Um, it gave me a good appreciation for, for Robbie as a bass player um, on this record in terms of uh, there's, there's quite a few things that he does on here that um, that really help kind of make it, you know, not feel empty, kind of fill up the space and make it interesting. A lot of nice runs and counter melodies and, and things like that. And, you know, I, I think he's probably, you know, uh, a little bit in the shadows now if you think about, you know, most of the hit songs have been Johnny's, or all of them. So, kind of forget that, um, you know, he's a he's a really good punk, you know, uh, hard rock bass player. And mm-hmm. I think his material on this record, too, not only do you see the Johnny Resnick stuff uh, start to develop and you, you get a sense of, you know, where he's eventually going to go, but I think this is probably... I'd have to go back and give Boy Named Goo a, a good uh listen but i feel like this is probably robbie's best material um yeah it is it is you know it's it, it, you know his stuff is punk um but it, it, he's got some gr- gr- really good courses on on some of these songs um and i don't know you know we can only um sort of guess at what the dynamic was but i'm wondering with johnny singing more and them just getting overall, overall more melodic um, and starting to take things a little bit more seriously that you know it uh, I can't help but wonder if it didn't push his songwriting as well you know i like uh I like where Johnny Resnick is at this point in his development it's still rough enough that you get that that tie to the replacements mm-hmm. uh, more so than maybe even the record after this where it starts to become um, more even more polished sort of every record. <laughs> I think after this gets more and more polished for him. And this is the one where he's still like in that, you know, some of these songs still have that punk rhythm to him, but, you know, with his, his vocals and melodies, um, it, it makes for interesting replacements esque kind of energy, mm-hmm. um, which I, which I like quite a bit. Um, some pretty fun <laughs> drum stuff on this record, uh, like double double bass and like super fast yeah. uh, fills and pretty crazy if you consider like later on, you know, most of their drums, you know, after this record are pretty straightforward. This record, um, the drummer is getting a workout and uh, it's just kind of fun to hear uh, some of their stuff with really aggressive drum parts underneath them. So yeah, and I think the, you called it with, uh, with the cover of "Never Taste Take Your Place of Your Man," it's just fun. It's just wish more bands would do stuff like that, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's just
0: a killer version of the song. Like they totally make it their own. Uh, it works in that you know Lance Diamond's you know got a super soulful voice, totally different, obviously than they, the two other guys in the band. But because it's played with such energy, like there's so much, uh the song is pushing the tempo so much that uh, you know, I think it makes it work. Uh, it, whereas if they, would it kind of played it more in the Prince tempo, I think it would have come off as kind of goofy, but the way that they do it, it's like they just go for it. And yeah. And Lance doesn't have a problem whatsoever keeping up. So it just makes it even better. Um, I thought it was funny that it's in the middle of the record. I mean, it's, Set, track seven it's right in the middle and um you'd almost think that they could have put that towards the end as like sort of a fun like hey here's an extra tune or, or that kind of thing but right in the middle of the record i'm wondering if they didn't have bigger hopes for it i don't know it's interesting uh choice to put it right there and then they have million miles away which is a uh i think a good version of that tune as well um I don't know that this record needs two covers, but I mean they're both good versions of those songs and they you know, they picked good songs to do. Um but I I guess I'm questioning a little bit the need to have two covers on this record. Um did that bother you at all?
1: Not per- not really in the sense that uh I still think this band hadn't really matured enough to take it seriously oh. um you know they the only the only single quote-unquote that was released for this record was was there you are track for the the john resnick so they definitely like knew that his voice was the more single friendly mm. voice um but you know this this band is like you know in a weird way follows in the uh, path of like um not the path but it has a similar trajectory as like Minus the Bear. Remember, Minus the Bear started out as, like, sort of a a jokey party band. Mm. And they had, like, those weird titles about, like, monkey knife fight and stuff like that. And, you know, if you look at the first Goo Goo Dolls record, they did two covers. There was a cover of Cream, Sunshine of Your Love, and Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. But they do them in a two-minute-long punk version. And then there's other songs, like, Don't Beat My Ass with a Baseball Bat, and... (laughs) That's good. And another song's called Slaughterhouse and another one's called H- Hard Sores. And yeah. so and then uh, on the second album, Jed, there's, you know, the aforementioned Sex Maggot. They do two covers on that album too: Creedence Crew Water Revival's Down in the Corner, which they do with Lance Diamond. And then they do another cover of uh, um, Give Me Shelter. And um Other songs on the album are called Up Yours. Uh, I mean, they were, I think they were just like a goofy punk band, basically. And then once John figured out he could kind of sing, they sort of slowly started to figure out, well, what could we do with that? Mm -hmm. Um, But if you go listen to A Boy Named Goo, I mean, even though all the singles are John's, that album was like almost split 50-50 between those two guys.
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: And even Dizzy Up the Girl has a lot of Robbie songs. Now, on the on, the, I, as I understand it, on the new record, Robbie only sings two songs. Yeah. So they've definitely, and I don't know what the last couple albums have been like because I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't listened to anything no. since Gutter Flowers. I don't even know that I listened to that, um, and I probably just heard the singles. Yeah. So I I think that the, I mean there's a precedent for them doing two covers record because they did it on the first record and they did it on the second record um the fact that they didn't do any covers uh on i think on superstar car wash i don't think there's any covers on that one
0: uh yeah i don't remember any of that so i, I think what bothers me on, on this record I, I love the songs so it's not like a critique of the songs it's uh i think in this record their songwriting starts to come uh, starts to mature, and uh, I think you're left to compare it to these other two songs, which are, let's face it, much better. I mean, Never Take the Place of Your Man is a brilliant song, and mm-hmm. Million Miles Away isn't too damn bad either. So you're left to compare their songwriting to these covers they're doing. Right. Which, um, you know, it's easier to see, like, oh, okay, well, this is – You know, this song's got a great verse, but it needs a better chorus. And this song's got a great chorus, but it needs a better verse. And, you know, you can start to pick. It makes it easier to pick apart their
1: material on this record. Um, So actually, you know, what's interesting is that they didn't do any covers on Superstar Car Wash. They did do two covers on A Boy Named Goo. The last two songs, Disconnected is a cover of a band called The Enemies. Hmm. And Slave Girl is a cover of the band band called The Lime Spiders. I didn't
0: know that. Those yeah. Were and
1: so those are really obscure covers. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that hmm. they decided to do that. And now then, of course, one might... of their biggest singles of the 2000s has been the cover of, I think it's Super Tramp's Give a Little Bit.
0: Oh, Yeah. I forgot they did that, but yeah, I've heard that.
1: Yeah, they recorded huh. it as a part of that live album that they did, and then they ended up putting a studio version on the next record, and it, I guess it did pretty well.
0: Now, this record might feature their only instrumental, right? It, it might be.
1: I'd have to Kevin go through song. and listen to
0: the whole catalog, but yeah. And it's an interesting song in that it's got a a 6-8 part and a 4-4 four, four part, mm-hmm. and then it's got piano over it, which... And it's an interesting piano. Like it's it's kind of this off kilter sounding, like it's not tuned quite right. Parts right. of it performance wise sound uh really, you know, competent and other parts are just weird off notes. It's it's kind of a fun song. I mean, it's like half of a John song
1: and half of a Robbie song, too. Yeah.
0: think that them doing an instrumental would be that compelling but it's actually pretty good
1: yeah yeah i agree it's uh it kind of um makes sense in the overall scope of the record so yeah it doesn't it doesn't fail And, and honestly nothing really fails which is such a weird thing because when you go back and listen to the the more raw you know albums of bands that got successful know, a couple ep- albums into the career, you can kind of go, oh, well, I can see why this record did connect or what have you. Yeah. or I think it was really matter- more a matter of timing. I think if this album had come out, no, this came out in 1990, so we're still, we haven't had Nirvana yet. We haven't had Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. You know, the, the alternative bands that broke through with that movement hadn't happened. You had like the Chili Peppers had made some impact and Jane's Addiction and Pixies and stuff, but it was really more of a college impact than mainstream. And um I wonder what would have happened if this record had come out, you know, 94, 95, if some of these weirder aspects of the band had would have been ironed out by then, or if they had, uh you know, I wonder if There You Are could have been a big single in in 94 and 95.
0: Yeah. It's kind of crazy to think this came out in 1990. I mean, this is in a lot of ways, I mean, it's, I guess, yeah, ahead of its time. It's just so odd to think about. Like in 1990, this band was made this record because um, you you can hear that there's this like punk, almost thrashy kind of uh, undercurrent to the band. Mm -hmm. But then there's these other songs which are, you know, getting into ballads or just kind of mid-tempo, alternative rock or rock tunes. They're searching for their identity, there's no doubt. Um, but in a weird way, it all kind of works together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've re- read some other records where I think we've heard similar kinds of, um, you know, variety with uh, with less success. And yeah, in a weird way, this, this record somehow holds together despite really running the gamut from two days in February to something like Out of the Red, which is like, you know, just a noisy pop punk song. Right. Um, so, oh, and the funny part about that tune is that uh, in the break, uh, there's like a, they stop and the, um, there's a spoken vocal that says, oh, son of a bitch. It mm-hmm. sounds exactly like Dave Mustaine. Every time I hear it, I'm like, is that Dave Mustaine? That spoken kind of, delivery he has it sounds exactly like him
1: right what's weird about it is is these pop punk songs sound like the pop punk that would get popular yeah in the mid 90s right nobody was doing this and nobody then. was doing I mean, that i guess there are
0: probably some punk bands doing it i suppose but nobody in the rock nobody had taken it and tried to like make it mainstream let's put it that way no just I think, what they were trying to do. Yeah, just a... In, uh, when you think about it, if you listen to this record after this review, when you think about this happening in 1990, it, it makes it all even more interesting. Yep. A- and that it was on Metal Blade, because you're like, Jesus, who is this band touring with? Like, I bet they were out with metal bands um, or in punk bands, and uh, that's probably a lot of this material why it was written, mm-hmm. you know, so they could go out and work crowds like that and and get that to work. But then they're starting to become something different also, which I'm wondering, like if they even played any of these tunes, how often they would get a chance to play them depending on who they were touring with. I don't even know who they would have toured with in 1990, you know?
1: I don't know. So Jay, let's, uh, let's talk about our overall record or overall opinion on this record. Were the album better EP or decent single? What do you think?
0: I'm at a worthy album. I don't, I have all the majority of these songs highlighted um, as liking them. So I think there's really only two or three tracks on here that I'm, and even those, like there's parts of them that I think are pretty cool. Um, So yeah, I dig this. I, I, like I said earlier, when we started this, started this uh, review, I'm I'm a big fan of this era of the band. I think they were doing some um, really interesting things and, other than a couple uh, comparisons to um, Paul Westerberg, I think they're wholly original.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you. It, it, it's kind of a surprising worthy album, but this, this record is such an interesting document, and there's so many uh, weird ways that they take it, but it somehow all works together, and... Um, I think it helps that there's not a single song um, longer than four – the Prince cover is three minutes and 52 seconds. That's uh, yeah. That's the longest song in the record. So even on the songs that you might not particularly love, they're so short. It's like, well, you're going to go along to the next one in two minutes, so don't worry about it. Yeah.
0: I think the other thing that's interesting about this is that I don't know that a band could have this kind of career ever again. You know, if you think about it, it took them four. It took them three records to start to find their sound, and a fourth record to really
1: mm-hmm.
0: hone it and have a hit. Uh, and that's t- that went from what nineteen eighty six to nineteen ninety three yep. four. I mean, that's just not going to happen again. I know it's unfortunate, but uh, I don't think even business aside, I don't think people would be that um, sort of faithful to each other. Like these guys were told, you know, they were in it to figure it out, like, and, and right. to make it work. And it's almost and they, like a seventies band. Yeah. And they're still, you know, they're still doing it. Like at this point, let's be honest, like Johnny Resnick could probably say like, Hey, <laughs> you know, I'm writing eight, 90% of the material. I have all the big hits. Like, do I really need this guy in the band? But right. Like they're still those two dudes.
1: Yeah. There's so, a the band. Yeah. All right. Well, want to remind everybody that if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. We'd love to hear also what you have to say about this record. Do you agree with us that it's a worthy record or do you have other opinions? You can do so at uh, Facebook, Twitter at digmeoutpodcast.com. You can even uh, hit us up on Instagram. Don't forget, we have a couple days remaining in the Patreon giveaway. If you would like to win the double vinyl, 180 gram, uh, The Heart is a Monster by Failure, just sign up at Patreon. It'll only cost you a dollar, and you can take that home. It has to be done by midnight, Eastern Standard Time. On April 30th, that's when the contest ends. That's it. For Jay, um, Tim, we're out. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for
0: listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or... Requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.